As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to the Full 60 featuring Craig Custance and presented by The Athletic. Each week, we'll dive into the biggest stories in hockey, while bringing in unique voices to entertain and explain all aspects of the game. Hey, this is Craig, and welcome to this week's episode of The Full 60. And I am thrilled to have this week's guest on the show, the second member of the Burke family to join The Full 60. Uh, Patrick was one of the uh, first season one uh, guests. Brian Burke, author of a book that I have in my hand, called Burke's Law, A Life in Hockey, that I literally finished in two days. Um, it was that good. And I'm not just saying that because he's on the other line. Berkey, how are you? I'm good, Craig. How are you? I'm doing really well. Thanks for doing this. And I, I, I'm going to dive. There's, oh, I've got notes and notes and pages over here to, to dive into from this book. But because we are coming off um, the draft, and Jeff said you were great last night on, on the Sportsnet, which sadly I, I didn't get here in the States. What's it like doing it from this end? The covering the draft that you've always made a huge splash. Now you're 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 analyzing. How how do you like that side of it? Well, it's a lifestyle change to go to broadcasting. I don't travel anymore, and yeah. I don't miss that the the nonstop travel of a GM, and all the travel I've done over the years to come back and see my kids. So I don't miss that. Yeah, um, I do miss the action of being on the floor and. You know, I had two big days on the floor in 93 when I drafted Chris Pronger and then 99 with the Twins. But uh, so I miss it a little bit those days, but not enough to go back. <laughs> yeah, you did mention the book. You've had opportunities. I was wondering what it would take to lure you back in. Uh, it would have to it would have to be an owner I trust completely. You know, my experience has been that owners hire you and listen to you for a certain period of time and then they begin to question uh, your decision making, and I'm, I'm just tired of that. I'm tired of arguing with rich people. <laughs> same, same problem. I, I, I'm going to try to the line I want to work on and see if it works for me as well as it has for you. Is there's two hands on the steering wheel and they're both mine? You think I can get away with that in in the journalism world? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't try it. As I say, when I speak at law schools or business schools, I tell that story because every jam job I got, I started the interview that way, and I said. Um, look, I don't want to waste your time. If you hire me, there's only two hands on the steering wheel and they're both mine. And if you don't want to give that autonomy to a GM, then I'll help you hire your next GM. I'll go through the people with you, but it won't be me. And it it worked every time. And I wouldn't recommend it as a job strategy, but (laughs) (laughs) it it worked for me. Um, All right. To stay in the moment for a second, I, I, there was a, I've seen it now being circulated on Twitter. This moment where Columbus makes a pick yesterday, and nobody knows the guy. And I love that Yarmo Kekalainen just in, and I'm sure on some level you admire that too. Just doesn't give, doesn't care what anyone thinks. He's going with his list. What's going through your mind on the air when there's a guy that you guys are just scrambling to figure out who it is? Well, I started punching, trying to get his name spelled right, and punching <laughs> in to find something out about him. And then Sam Constantino is our draft guru. And he didn't have him on listed, and I'm like, if Sam doesn't know him, then I'm not going to know him. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason when we do the draft, Sam goes first because he has more intimate knowledge of the players. I've done a ton of research, talking to teams, interviewing the players, 
So I come in with what the GM has told me or AGM has told me about the player. But Sam goes through his career, and, you know, he knows these guys inside out. So when he was scrambling, I was scrambling. And, yeah, I do admire a GM going off the list. But as I said on the air last night, if you go too far off the list, here be dragons. You know, the ancient cartographers, that when they did maps, they knew the extent of the known world. And beyond that, they assumed there were sea serpents and krakens and people, and they put on the margin of the map, here be dragons. And at some point, if you go too far off the, the chart, you're making a mistake, and we'll find out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Yarmos, uh, he's had success in the past, you know, kind of sticking sticking to his list. What's do you have? What's the biggest reach you've ever made on a draft floor? Is there ever one where you're like, we don't care, we're, we know that everyone's going to lose it over this pick, but we're doing it? Um, a couple times we took guys, but usually with much later picks. Yeah, right, right. Where we we take a guy and someone would say, uh, you know, look, there's this guy and this kid player from Kazakhstan, and I don't, I only saw him in one tournament, but he's big and he can skate, and let's take a flyer on him. And I'm perfectly willing to do that with a fourth or fifth pick. I think the the biggest reach I ever took was Tampa Bay had drafted Fedor Fedorov. And he went back in the draft, and we took him. And our scouts came to me, and they said, "Look, he's six four, two thirty, can skate, can shoot, has had not, you know has a, a problem figuring out the game and fitting in with teammates and all that. But this is either going to be a strikeout or a grand slam. So right. let's go for it." And I, I think it was a third round pick. I said, "Okay, I'm, I'm willing to swing for the fence with a third round pick. First round pick, I would have been like, guys, let's be a little safer." Yeah. Um, it, it was interesting. I mean, you mentioned Pronger and the Sedins and, and making a splash there. What I found interesting was later on in your career, when you then would try to make a splash, guys just wouldn't even talk to you. Like, it was like, no, we're not going to get involved in one of these deals. Yeah, with Bobby Ryan in 05, uh, with his draft, we had Bobby Ryan at two. We took him at two. And I knew no one else had him that high. So I yeah. thought I could trade down three, four, five especially where we knew Montreal was taking the goaltender. And I remember Doug Reisberg just walked away from me. He said, I've seen your act here. And <laughs> so, and not only that, I think the Sedin deal really killed draft floor deals. There haven't been hardly any since then because it was such a lopsided victory for the Vancouver Canucks that uh, I think teams are reluctant to peddle those high picks now. They'd never, like we talk about them leading up to the draft and with always the caveat, oh, by the way, none of this will happen. You yeah. know, like these, these picks aren't moved. Is it just because teams are scared to, you know, you don't want to pass on the, the sure thing? I, I think it's a combination of human nature is to do what's safest. And what right. made the Sedin deal work, and you know this, Craig, was that the 1999 draft was the worst first round in the history of the league. It was a terrible first round. In fact, after the World Juniors in, in Winnipeg, I told our scouts, I don't. I hate this first round. I'm trading our pick. Yeah. And that breaks your heart to say that to the scouts because they work so hard for those two days of the year. And, you know, it's such a hard job and such a thankless job. And, I, you know, I, I remember I remember going to games when I, when I was an assistant GM and I scouted more, or even when I was a GM, I liked to scout. I, yeah. My favorite part of the job is scouting. Hmm. But I remember, you know, you go to Brandon to watch a kid play and then you drive back to Winnipeg because you have an early flight in the morning and it's pitch black. You're driving on the number one. There's there's snow drifts across the road. It's minus 40. I remember one time driving back from Brandon to Winnipeg with Zinger with the assistant GM of the Manitoba Moose. Yeah. We had northern lights the whole way. Oh, my gosh. The whole way back, we had northern lights to our left off to the north. And uh, so you get to the airport. You check in your hotel. It's, you, know, you don't stay at luxury hotels when you're by the airport. You check in. It's 1230 at night. You set your wake-up call for 5 o'clock. Mm. I mean, that's just it's a hard job. So when you tell the scouts you're trading that pick, that's a heartbreaker. And it wasn't until I went to the World Championships and realized how special these kids were that I decided we were going to do this. I like that you, you didn't mind having a little bit of showman in you, and it, which I find fascinating because you, you say Lou Lamarillo is, I mean, it, you know, I don't say say, like he's a mentor of yours, and, and we can get into that in a minute, but he's the opposite, right? Like he's not doing anything for show, but there's a point where you go to Donnie Waddell and you're like, hey, like, you know, let's, let's, I want these, I want these guys together. Like that was important too. It wasn't just getting them. It was, let's move you into the top spot and then let's do this all at once. Yeah, I didn't want to go up there twice. I thought it was. <laughs> right. I, I thought the real photo op was me up there with both kids. And it's funny when I went up there, I held out the sweaters. I, I didn't know which one was which. I couldn't tell them <laughs> apart for 
the better part of a year after they came over. Yeah. And we got we all got excited. The first year, Danny said he got a cut in his lip and took like six stitches, and we're all like, "Yes, we'll be able, we'll we'll be able to tell him apart." But the scar faded in like two weeks, and we we're like, "Damn!" You know? <laughs> so I wanted to go up and take him together. And what I said to Donnie is, I said, "Do you want to be the star of the draft?" And Donnie's a great guy, and he said, "Look, I've seen you scrambling around here. I know who's going to be the star of this draft." I said, "Well, do you want to pick number one?" Because Ted Turner was there. Ted Turner owned the team at that point. No expansion team had ever picked first. So I said to Donnie, I don't want to go up twice. I'll let you pick first. Ted Turner can go up on the stage. And so that's why we did that deal. Hmm. That's Yeah, that's great. And that's, by the way, and that's why the Twins were 22 and 33. Yeah. Uh, they wanted high numbers. I said, no. On my teams, you're under 35. And, and that Canuck team, all the numbers were under 35. And so I said, why don't you take 22 and 33? And everyone says I'm such a genius. I actually drafted them in the wrong sequence. Like everyone had Danny Sedin rated higher than Hank. Yeah. <laughs> and Hank, Hank is, in fact, a better player. So that's why they were 22 and 33. That's great. That's great. Um, all right. So so one of the things to, to start before we get into to like your backstory is you have a, a, a section in this book that's it's broken into chart form. And it's basically roster construction, which I love to talk about and how to build a team. And broken down line by line, position by position, exactly what you think needs to be put into, you know, what kind of players you need in each spot. How much is, have you evolved at all in this? And I don't mean evolved in a negative way, right? Like, have have you changed your position on this as the game has changed? Yeah. You, that, so the Anaheim Cup team was the straight top six, bottom six right. team. We had lots of skill in the top six, and then we had a third line that could shut down anybody, maybe the best third line in the modern era. Yeah. And then we had a fourth line that could kill penalties and fight. Yeah. And we had we always dressed a heavyweight, and then we dressed at least the, – the idea was to get four guys in the lineup that would fight. Because if you just have one, he fights, he's in the box for five minutes, and the other team starts running around again, and you got no solution. So we tried to have – Toughness that could play, yeah. the Brad Brad Mays of the world, the Sean Thorntons of the world, plus a heavyweight, George Peros, and then one defenseman that would fight. So we wanted four guys dressed that could fight. You don't need that anymore. So now you evolve. You evolve. I don't take that as a, a negative thing, Craig. I think you have to evolve as a GM. It's like the use of analytics. I'm not a big analytics guy, but you can bet your butt we looked at. We incorporated analytics. Every tool that you have to win, you've got to you got to implement it. And so, yes, you have to evolve. You wouldn't have a straight top six, bottom six. It would be a top nine, bottom three, or even a top eight, bottom four. But the boxes, and, and I think people will find that fascinating. Yeah, that, it really is. That was, the, the boxes were, I would tell the scouts, if you're telling me we should draft a guy, he has to fit in one of these boxes or don't bring his name up. Yeah. Yeah. And it's and it's fast and it was always fun to watch. You could really see it in Toronto as you you're you were building that team and it was clear like okay, this is we're we're acquiring this player to fit exactly like you were very clear about what you were doing there. Well, we had the when I got let go in Toronto, we had the fastest team in the NHL. Yeah. And the toughest team in the NHL. And that team made the playoffs. I wasn't there to see it, but that team made the playoffs. There was a clear design there. Mm. So when I look at the Tampa Bay Lightning, and that's one of the things I did, like right away, I, I'm like, okay, I've got the, you've got this blueprint in your book. Now, how does it compare to the Cup team? And and you know, there was a lot made about Julian Brisebois' kind of decision, right, to say, okay, it does seem like another version of this, right? The, the guys we need to add, the Blake Coleman's guys like that, have to, you know, they have to they have to fit these slots. It's just it's just a different version. Yeah, <clears throat> and I really admire how Julian Breezeway inherited a the guts of the team were put together by Steve Eiserman, but he did a surgical job on filling the boxes. It's exactly how I built my team. You have to have a vision of how you're going to play, and then you get the players to play that style. And he got bigger, faster, more North American, and that's why they have a cup. Their skill guys weren't good enough to do it a year before. But they won a cup because he went out and filled out that chart. Do you think we're <laughs> we're going to see now an an overreaction from other teams saying, "Okay, we got to you know we need to do this same thing, but not, you know not get the Blake Coleman's." I well, feel like that's I, what's going to happen next. I I think big big teams have been except for the two Pittsburgh Cup teams, a kind of no name defense and and not that big, but two superstars. Um, 
I think every team that's played in the conference finals has been able to play big hockey. Like, yeah, you look at the in the finals, there were there were over a hundred hits in those in a couple of those games. A hundred yeah. hits. Yeah. So I think you need to play that style. St. Louis played that style. Washington played that style. Tampa played that style. I don't think it's a fad. Right. 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 Um, and you're also clear on fighting in the book. You in the quote I pulled out. I believe in it still. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, why? So your argument against concussions, I think it was Steve Eisman once said, like, you know, we're trying to remove concussions from the game. So let's, it seems to me you can remove the one thing where guys are punching each other in the head. But your your argument was you actually have fewer if you have those guys, the ability to fight. Yeah. Yeah. First off, the, the number of concussions that occur in fights is quite low as a percentage of concussions in the game. Yeah. And I and the reason I believe in fighting is I believe the accountability factor, that it's uh, the notion that if I run you, yeah, and cheap shot you, I might have to fight you, or even worse, I might have to fight someone on your team that's much tougher than you. Right. So I'm gonna I'm gonna think hard about it, and that's why dressing a Colt Nor, dressing a George Peros, right away the game changes. So the guys are in the warm up, they look over, they see a heavyweight, and they're like, well kind of calm down tonight and so i i believe it reduces the cheap shots and the violence in the game and i think it accounts for a very small percentage of concussions so i i you know my my comment would be not to argue with steve eiserman who's you know a hall of famer and a great guy but i just don't see it that way and and certainly detroit didn't see it in the in the day when he played there right right who do you think right now is the best in the game in terms of Having that, because you can't have, you know, like you said, you can't just have the fighters. Who do you look at the game and say, okay, this guy is policing a game by just having his presence out there? Tom Wilson. Yeah, that's, you know, I agree. That's a great one. And he's a bit of a unicorn because he can really play. Great skater. He can score goals. He can kill penalties, which is a very useful skill. Yeah. And if you notice on my chart, that's in there. It's noted uh, numerous times that this guy has to be able to kill penalties. Yep. yep. And um, but Tom Wilson, he, guys are afraid of him. Uh, he crosses the line once in a while, but that's okay. You know, we got to have guys that straddle that line sometimes. And um, and and there's too much. You know, I think the game's in great shape from a skill standpoint, but yeah. there's still too much flag football during the regular season. There's games where there's just not enough events to keep people's attention. The regular season isn't great, just for the record. It's not great. Uh, yeah. Well, first off, I'm a big advocate of fewer games. Yeah. I too. remember in, in 1993, Gary Bettman called me in and said it was my first week on the job. And he said, what's one thing I can do to dramatically improve this game? And mm. you don't have to answer me right now. You can sleep on it. I said, no, I can tell you right now. And he said, what? I said, go to 70 games or 72 games. We play too many games. And he mm. said, well, I can't do that. I said, well, you asked me. I mean, the fact is, I think we play too many games. And so you go to a game, and, and people should realize, I'm a season ticket holder here in Toronto. Yeah, I don't sit in my seats because I can't. But every <laughs> night the Leafs, the Leafs are home, and I'm not in studio, I'm in the press box. I love watching the NHL. It's my favorite thing to do. And I watch, and I'm like, okay, there's three guys out for the Leafs, and there's two guys out for the team they're playing. And that's a lot. A large part of us, we play too frequently. If, if we'd have fuller rosters and better teams and better hockey, if the players were rested, not banged up. And I'm not talking about going to 50 games. I'm talking about taking like 10 games out of the schedule. And that would put a day and a, a game and a half into each month. You take that out of the schedule, the schedule gets better. I also think we have to travel much smarter than we do. I think the league does a very poor job on the schedule. And I think you'll see that rectified in the coming season where they're going to have to do back-to-backs and have right. to be more economical because travel costs, that's a big line item now. Yeah. And when you were, we were, we were all cruising along and buildings were full, everything was great. The owners didn't care what travel costs, travel the right way, charter everywhere, nice hotels. Now they're going to watch that a, a lot more closely. How many games do you think there'll be next year? 60, 62. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds about right. But I love that short, the lockout shortened season. What was it 48 games? Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. 
You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. The last one? The yeah, it was, was exciting. Best. It was awesome. Yep. In, in telling your story, there was so much to get into. And I, I loved, I want to start with the experience of Providence in Lou Lamarillo and, and what it was like to have Lou in your living room visiting your house on a recruiting visit <laughs> well he didn't even talk to me <laughs> he sat in the living room and he talked to my mom and dad and and my mom and dad my dad was valedictorian of his class in college brilliant guy my mom was a, a nurse a brilliant lady and he just talked to them about academics and how every kid that went to providence graduated and they did by the way yeah. every every player that went there while i was there graduated and um to me, uh, he, he just painted a picture that my parents wanted to hear. And I was the first kid to go to a non-Ivy League caliber school. So my oldest brother went to Stanford. My older sister, who passed away a couple years ago, went to Wellesley. And then my next older brother, John, went to Dartmouth. So for me to go to Providence was stepping way out of the fast lane. Right. And, um, and my parents were like, no, you got to go where it's a good fit for you. Don't worry about the the stature of the if you if you go to Stanford and hate it, yeah, you're not going to have a good college experience. Pick the school; it's a good. That's what I told my kids, and they all picked school. My four older kids all picked schools that were good fits for them and had a great experience. Yeah, what what would you say you you, you have like I mean, Lou's had an impact on so many people. I, what I thought was interesting was I assumed you had some relationship with them that the rest of us haven't been able to access, but I, like you were like this this guy really doesn't let people get close to him like what were you able to still learn from him despite that you know kind of i guess boundary he puts up well i owe lou everything i mean i i went to providence college in the fall of 1973 i was a green green kid and just a green minnesota kid um didn't know anything i i, I played one year of high school hockey um, my sixth year of organized hockey, I was playing division one college hockey. Like I worked my tail off to get where I did. I walked on as a freshman and Lou, Lou guided me through it, helped me become a much better person, a much better hockey player, taught me leadership skills. Uh, I owe him everything. And, and, and we're close in the sense that I admire and, and love Lou. Like, like when I see him, I'm genuinely excited to see him. I'll hug him. I mean, I really like him, and I know him better than most people, but he has a big wall there. He, he does not let you into his private space, and he's never going to let anyone in there other than his family. And that's the way it is, and that's okay. It's worked for him. Yeah. I like that. I feel like I've got a version of that some. You know, you, you have to keep something, in, in my opinion, right? Like, you have to protect yeah. some space in this. You know what I mean? Yeah, and this book is a departure for me because yeah. I, have always, I have always kept the wall up. People say, like I read the the comments on the jacket where uh, Mike Mulberry says he's a real teddy bear. I don't care if people see that side of Brian Burke. They see this gruff, obnoxious guy. That's fine. I, I don't care if the average person likes me or not. It's like I think I said in the book, people come up to me after I give a speech and they'll say, I never liked you, but now I think you're a really good guy. And I'm like, I, I didn't care yesterday what you thought. <laughs> And I don't care today. So why'd you just say that? And, yeah. and, and my ex-wife would say, you had a chance to make a friend there. Right. Why right. don't you just say, why, thank you? I said, because I truly don't care. Like, if the average <laughs> fan thinks I'm a jerk, that's fine with me. I don't care. The, uh, there's a small circle of people whose opinions really matter to me. And mostly family and a few close friends. And the rest of them, really, uh, I slept really well last night. I didn't lose any sleep wondering whether people like the coverage I gave on the draft or like me as a person or think I'm interesting. I don't care. <laughs> have you, have you, so I do care. I, I, like I'm a, I guess a, I would be a people pleaser, I guess, in that regard. Have you always been wired that way, and where do you think that comes from? And can I well, have I, a little bit of it? Um, <laughs> yeah, well, I think, I think there's a big part of me. My parents raised us to do the right thing and, do, and don't care what other people think. Right. And we were raised in a very liberal household. No racial humor, no homophobic commentary. We were a very progressive liberal family. And I think that's where it started, which is do the right thing. And if people don't like it, too bad. And so it started there. And then 
playing for Lou, it was, it was the same thing. It was like, you do things the right way. Don't worry what people think about it. Do the right things and do things the right way, which are different things. Doing the right thing means following your moral compass and doing the right thing. Doing things the right way means doing the little things, handwritten notes to people. I'm a big believer in handwritten notes after you, you see someone. Thank you for finding time to see me. Uh, and those have gone the way of the dinosaur, right? It's all emails now, yeah. but a handwritten note is still special. Um, and so it was reinforced at Providence because Lou was a big believer in that. We're going to do the right thing and we're going to do things the right way. So, for example, how we dressed. We had to wear a, a suit and tie to games back in the 70s when a lot of teams didn't bother with that. We had to do that. Every game night you had to show up with a suit and tie or a suit coat and a tie on. And haircuts. We had to have haircuts, which he still carries over. And so, and manners. Like, you had to have good manners at, at Providence College. If you were at the team meal and you barked at a chef or said something to someone and it wasn't polite, it was like, um, hey, who do you think you are? And so, and then it carried over when I worked for Pat Quinn. Pat was the same way. He said, we're going to do things our way, and if people don't like it, too bad. Mm. You mentioned you don't like you don't care, and I, I I believe you, and you don't typically share this. What motivated you to write the book? Like that popped into my head. Like, well, I I was approached by Stephen Brown about doing a book right after we won the Cup at Anaheim. Yeah, and I didn't think that at that point I had done enough for. I I just didn't feel the story was interesting. And then over the next few years, people would say, when's your book coming out? And I'd be like, what are you talking about? you got to write a book. you got so many great stories. You're sitting in a bar having a few beers, telling the guys a story about the Trevor Linden draft. And, and, and then they're like, you got to write a book. So in Calgary, my last year there, I worked for the late, great Ken King, but it was clear things weren't working. And they told me the deal we had made when I went there was at the end of each year, I could walk away or they could walk away. And so he told me, like in February, he said, uh, at the end of the year, we're done. And I said, okay, that's fair. And uh, But then for the next, you know, that, that was in February. So now we got March, April, May, and they weren't really consulting with me much. I spent time with the GM every day, but they weren't really asking me. So I started making an outline. I thought, mm -hmm. okay, if I were going to write a book. So I don't like biographies that focus on the early life of the person. So okay. I only wrote as much as I felt people needed to know right. about my journey, how I started playing hockey, my journey through high school, and then to college. If you notice, I, I could have written a whole five chapters about going to Providence College. I loved it. Yeah. But I went through that. To me, I'm interested in reading a sports book on when Brian Burke took his first job with the Vancouver Canucks or some of the agent stuff. Yeah. And so that's the focus of the book. So I did a timeline, and then I started filling in stories. I, I, I hired a... Uh, an EA to do to type it up for me, and uh, and and she would fill in these stories, and it ended up being like a hundred pages of single space writing. And then when I decided to do it, I hired Stephen Brunt, who did a marvelous job with the book. He's a great writer, and and we've become good friends through this. I really uh, enjoy his company. And um, and I started, you know, Stephen looked at the outline. He said, well, you write like a lawyer. This is useless, but it's good for a time. <laughs> it's good for a time frame. Yeah. And we used it as the beginning of the book and then started dictating all the other parts of it. And it's a lot of work doing a book. And now there's a lot more work. Like we've got free agency Friday and then the next two weeks are nothing but podcasts, right. and interviews, virtual stuff uh, to promote it. So I think people will like it. And I'm glad you did. I think they'll find it interesting, and um, and maybe they'll learn something. Yeah, no, it's it's good. It's just I, I, you know, it's it's just interesting to hear you say. I, I don't, you know, you don't, you have no care, and but I'm glad, you know, it, it, I, I agree. Like I, I thought, the stuff that gets into your to kind of the major decisions that's what I found most fascinating, and I think I, I I'm always fascinated that with people. And one of the early ones, and I know we, you don't want to harp early on too much, but having to decide about Harvard, which you didn't enjoy, which I didn't know. Um, you know, making that decision to go to Harvard Law School versus playing, what, what, how difficult was that? Okay, so, and, and people, I mean, I can't I can't tell all these stories yeah. and then expect people to buy the <laughs> no, book. No, that's fair, that's fair. <laughs> no, so, okay, so I put, I started playing hockey when I was 13. We moved to Minnesota when I was 12. I watched the, the state high school hockey tournament and fell in love, and I started playing the next year. So this is a, a, a total novice, like, like couldn't stand up, couldn't lift the puck. I remember the first time I could shoot a puck and lift it off the ice. 
I was already close to 14. All right, and this this is in Minnesota where I grew up in Edina. Kids start playing at five. Yeah. So I was way behind, and I had to work my tail off to catch up. And I had my four rules, which we can talk about or we can skip. But then I get to Providence. I make the team as a walk-on. I go from a walk-on, which if people don't know, it's an NCAA term. You're recruited, but you don't get any financial aid. So you're paying your own way. It's really hard to make a team as a walk-on. I made the team. Next year, I went on a half scholarship, then full the last two years. I was captain my senior year. I graduated with the game, the record for games played at Providence College, which has been smashed by everyone since because they play way more games now. Right. But I graduated with the record for most games played. Never missed a game in four years due to injury or illness. And I was hurt a lot the way I played. I was hurt a lot, but I played. So I invest all this time. I sign with the Flyers. I play on a Calder Cup championship team. Now I've been accepted to Harvard, and they say, you've either got to come or you've got to give up your spot. And I was like, I have worked so hard to get to the American Hockey League, to get to pro hockey. I have to, I have to see this through. I have to see this through. i got to play one more year and see if I can make it. And then I realized the opportunity. I, we played in Maine that year, and a couple of right wing. I was a right winger, and a couple of right wingers got hurt. John Paddock got hurt, and Larry Romanchuk, I think, got hurt. And I thought, great. My ice time's going to go up, and it didn't. And I realized no one here has any plans for me. So it was a very difficult decision to give up after you invest that kind of time and effort. I mean heart and soul, hours in the weight room, running, skating, all the work I put into it to catch up to everybody. I just didn't want to walk away from that. And I, I finally realized it was the right decision. My dad was emphatic about it. And uh, so I decided to go back, but it was a really hard decision. And I missed hockey horribly Mm. for years after that. Yeah. Yeah. I I think when people are making those decisions, uh, there's a phrase and it's, and I'm forgetting like opportunity cost or whatever it is where you sit there and you say, I've put so much in and now to change directions, you you feel like you're losing all of that on some level. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm talking about like a supreme effort to catch up and be successful yeah. as a hockey player. Yeah. Way more work. Like I told the story in the book, my first weigh-in at Providence College, I weighed 176 pounds. I was 6'2", same height I am now. Yeah. I weighed 176 pounds. I was a bone rack. And when I graduated, when I went to camp with the Flyers, I was 30 pounds heavier, and I hadn't grown a centimeter. That was just packing on muscle, working. I worked outside in my summer job. I hit the gym. I worked my tail off. And, and to do that supreme effort and then say, oh, I'm going to walk away from right, it. It right, was hard. Right. But I don't – did you ever regret it at any point? Were you ever like, oh, I oh, screwed this up? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. You, uh, to this day uh, – well, I've gotten over wondering if I would have made it to the NHL because I don't think I would have. I don't think I had the athletic ability. Yeah. And I started too late. You can only catch up so much. And then elite guys go by you. Um, so I gave that up a long time ago, but, um, but I missed it. Um, I didn't like law school. That didn't help my first year of law school. I was miserable. Um, I didn't like going to Harvard law school. I didn't enjoy the experience at all. Uh, I didn't wear a cap and gown in my graduation. I just wore a suit. I, I, I grabbed my diploma and got the hell out of there. Yeah. Um, I'm going to pause for one second and tell the listener because Brian, what I'd love to get into is like the, the, you know, kind of the stuff that shaped the person you are. And there's so much stuff, uh, great stuff in this book about, you know, working with Pat Quinn, building the ducks, building the Leafs, you know, the, the backstories, the drafts. Uh, So, so again, not to give anything away in the book. So I just want to encourage people. And now two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream direct TV satellite free. You see this? A family watching baseball on direct TV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on direct TV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. Direct TV has the most MLB games. Visit directtv.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Buy the book. Incredible stories. I love this, the decision-making stuff. And another decision you're faced with, and I, you put it to a moment, and I think I've had these moments in, like, dressing rooms or in press boxes, and I don't know if I've always responded the same way, but you're an agent, and you're looking at Donnie Meehan, you know, waiting for a client in a hallway or something, and, and I feel like I've done this. 
and you're like, I can't do this for the next 10 years of my life. And it's not a shot at Don. It was just like you were, you needed more. Can you just put me in that moment and that, that thought process and kind of what occurred to you? Yeah, it was in Rochester. And Donnie Meehan was, you know, he, he's a great guy. Yeah. He's been a gigantic success in the agent business. And he's just about 10 years older than I am. And I remember I was waiting for Gates Orlando, who's a client of mine that played for Rochester. And I looked down the hall and I see Donnie Meehan, who I, I like and admire. And he's waiting for a kid. And I'm like, I can't be waiting outside an American mm. Hockey League dressing room 10 years from now. Right. And I remember that that's when I said I, I, I got to get back on the team side. And the first guy I talked to about it was just for general advice was Cliff Fletcher, who's a wonderful human being. And I, I called Cliff and I said, look, if I want to get on the team side, what do I do? He said, well, it's kind of hard to come from that side to this side, but here's what I'd recommend. You know, the people you know in the business and admire, let them know you're thinking of a switch and and obviously, the first guy I went to and talked to about it was Pat. So um, Cliff gave me good advice, but you know, Pat was the guy I kind of I kind of worked very hard to develop that friendship. And and when I say that, it's not like I was a pest and Pat didn't like me. It was more right. like forcing Pat to make time to spend time with me so he could evaluate me, and it paid off. And that's how I got my first job. What does that look like for people? You know, I'm sure you get asked a lot, how do I break in? And, you know, I, I get similar questions. And I, one of the things I tell people is find somebody that's doing the job you want to do and, you know, and strike up a friendship or a mentorship. What did that look like between you and Pat? Well, Pat, and I tell the story in the book. So my first experience as a professional hockey player was I played seven games in Springfield in the American League. Yeah. And it was truly slap shot stuff. It was it was crazy <laughs> back then. But my first experience, so I signed with the Flyers. Um, I go to training camp. We have rookie camp in Portland, Maine. That's where the farm team was that year. Yeah. And at, at the dinner the night before, they had 40 kids in rookie camp. And so someone asked, Gil Stein, who was the president of the Mariners, went on to become the president of the NHL, how many of us are going to the main camp? And he said, all of you. And I don't think he knew. I don't think he was lying to us. I, I don't think he knew. He's like, well, probably all of these guys. And the fact is, half of those guys got sent home. I wasn't worried about getting sent home because I had a contract. But the next morning on the ice, Pat Quinn said, I know they told you you're all going to main camp, but it's not true. Half of you are going home. Mm-hmm. And that was my first experience with Pat Quinn. Well, you know, some risk there where you're contradicting your president. Right. And um, and he was honest. And I, I, I thought, this guy's wonderful. So then I played Maine and went back. My my roommate was Tommy Gorance, who's a wonderful guy and a good friend to this day. And um, he played for the Flyers after that. And I'd go down and stay with him when I was in law school. But I always made a point of setting up a lunch with Pat. Mm-hmm. And I'd say he was coaching the Flyers. And I'd say, Pat, you don't play on Tuesday. I'm going to be down there visiting TJ. Tommy Gorance, his nickname was TJ. And... Um, on that Tuesday, I'd like to buy a lunch after the Flyers practice. So we would practice, and Pat and I would go to South Philly. And Pat was a god in, in Philly. People yeah. loved him. Yeah. And we'd go have lunch. And I got to be good friends with Sandra, his his lovely wife. And uh, I just made time and made them make time for me every time I came there. Same when he coached the L.A. Kings. I'd go to L.A., and I'd stay with them. I'd say, Pat, I'm going to be in L.A. If you got time for lunch, you'd be like, why don't you stay here? So I, I kind of worked worked on Pat. And not in an unpleasant way, uh, but developed a friendship, and then he offered me a job. So my advice to people who want to get started is, first off, you should do a job that you love, because it's a cliche, but it's true. If you love your job, you're not really working. You're getting paid to do something you love. My biggest risk as a GM was getting a speeding ticket on the way to work, because I was so excited to get to work. And I still had that same passion, even up till two and a half years ago when I left Calgary. So to me, that's the key. And if it's something you really love, then you've got a network. The only way, and, and you have to volunteer sometimes to get started. My first job, I scouted for the Flyers, and I didn't get paid. They, they said to me, we'd like you to learn to scout. I hung around with the late, great Walt Tatanis, who who's the guy that drafted me, or claimed my rights. And I'd go to games with him. And, you know, you're going to Harvard Law School. Taking a night off and going to a hockey game is not easy when you've got six hours of homework a night. And so I'd go to a game at Boston College with Walt, and I'd rate the players. And I remember the first game I did with him, he ripped up my fo- my sheet right away, my form. 
he said, you're grading everyone too high, which is very common right. with young scouts. Yeah. But my first job, I did not get paid. The next year I said to the Flyers, I got offered a part-time job at a law firm doing research for 10 bucks an hour, which in 1979 was a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. And so I was like, I said to the Flyers, have you got any budget for me? And Mr. Allen, Keith Allen said, no, we don't. So I stopped scouting and went back and worked part-time because I, you know, I, I needed the money. Yeah. But, but my first job was a volunteer position. And, um, and I say to people, don't be afraid to do that. I think, and you mentioned it earlier, I think your four rules as a player, I think you could extrapolate that and just basically make it for life, right, as an employee yes. or somebody. Yeah, so my four rules. I realized when I, when I started playing hockey, I was hopelessly behind. And I, and, and I, you know, I was a pretty mature kid. Like, like even on my recruiting trip when I was 17, I told my dad when I came back, I'm, the coach at Dartmouth and the coach at Yale that recruited me, I told my dad, I said, I don't think they're going to make four years. And yeah. neither one of them did. I said, I won't get through a coaching change. I'm not yeah. a good enough player. So if you're at a college and the coaches change, they usually bring in their own guys and you're screwed unless you're a top player, which I was not. So that's pretty mature for a 17-year-old to figure that out. So even when I was 13, I said, all right, I need four rules. How am I going to catch these guys? Number one is the easiest one is be the hardest worker. Games and practices. I don't like players that play hard in games and don't practice hard. So I was the hardest working guy on every team I ever played on. And any teammate you ask will tell you that. Number two was be a, a coach's dream. Like you, if, in football, I played high school football. I never missed an assignment. I might blow an assignment. <laughs> Right. I might get run over, right. but I went. If the play says you, you know, pull left and and seal on the on the defensive end, that's what I did. Now sometimes I got knocked on my ass, but I executed the play properly. I knew the playbook. Mm-hmm. Be a coach's dream. Never in a film session with the coach say, Burke, what are you doing here? Right. You're totally out of position. So now the coach can rely on you. And so the last minute of the period, I was always on the ice at Providence. The last minute of the period, we got to get out of this. We have a one goal lead. I was always on the ice. And so be a coach's dream. Number three was be a, a, a indispensable teammate. Care about your teammate. If you call any guy I ever played with and said, tell me something about Brian Burke, the first thing he's going to say is he was a good teammate. I cared about my teammates' lives. I knew their girlfriends' names. I knew their wives' names. I knew their kids' names. I, I knew their pets' names. I knew something about them. I expressed interest in them. I'd follow. Uh, we had a couple guys on the team from Saskatchewan. I'd see something in the paper about Saskatchewan, and I'd I'd go and say, "Hey, I see some, you know there was a flood in, in Regina," and and the guys would be like, "Wow!" So be an indispensable teammate. And the fourth one was play tough. Yeah. Like toughness carries a premium, and I played hard. I hit hard. I fought when I needed to. Uh, and that carries a premium on any team if they know this is a guy that will dive in front of a puck and block it with his face. This is a guy that will fight if he has to in a, in a game, if a teammate needs that, whether he thinks he can win the fight or not. And that, parenthetically, on fighting, that's one of the hardest things in the world. People don't realize when you fight when you're supposed to, and you're fighting a guy that you really don't think you can beat and you still do it anyway, that takes tremendous courage. So those were my four rules. It's funny that you mentioned it. Like, I, like, I've talked to guys that have fought and they knew they had to fight and they would talk about how they just didn't even sleep the night before. Like the stress that goes, like, you know, we just see the fight, right? And like, oh, this guy had to answer the bell. But the, the stress that leads up to that moment for a player yeah, is, it's, is it's very difficult. Yeah. Um, all right. A couple topics. I, I'm already feeling pressed for time. Uh, you mentioned this really fascinating stuff about your time with the league. And I won't get into, you know, the Chris Draper petitions and like <laughs> incredible <laughs> details. Um, but you said working for Gary Bettman was like getting an MBA. And, uh, you know, I think Gary, you know, you mentioned he's not loved in Canada. I'm not sure he's loved in the U.S. either. But, you know, what's the biggest misperception there? And what is what's the biggest thing you learned from Gary? Oh, well, we, we need two, two hours to talk <laughs> about both those things. I, yeah, I think finally, I, I will say finally, I think Gary Bettman is finally – getting the accolades that he deserves by the way they've handled the pandemic and the way they structured the bubbles yeah, and the way they plowed ahead now with the draft, free agency. He's going to salvage this business at a time where a lot of businesses aren't going to get through this. And, yeah. and I think people are finally saying this guy knows what he's doing and he's finally getting the accolades that he deserves. But when he came over, he was an unknown. He worked at the, at the NBA 
and I say in the book, I had called Bob Stein, who was president of the Timberwolves, and I said, they're talking about this Bettman guy. And he said to me, if you guys can get Gary Bettman, get him. Don't 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 hesitate. Get him. He, he's a star. Yeah. And so when, when Gary came in, none of us knew him. And the, the, it was chaos back then. The league meetings were chaos back then. <laughs> we had owners going to prison, and we had teams folding and, and threatening to move, and we had, you know, he restored order, and, and it took a while. The first, right. My first year there, the meetings were crazy, but he took a, a small mom-and-pop industry and turned it into the National Hockey League in 2020. He's made it a, a gigantic charitable enterprise. He's made it a force. You know, Hurricane Katrina, the league steps up. Mm. Social justice, the league steps up. And he, he's turned it into... A, a very successful business with a great labor piece and a great television contract. Obviously, we've got a major challenge now, yeah. but he, he's up to that. He'll figure it out. But what people don't realize about him is he's brilliant, and he's a good guy. Like people say, oh, he yells at people. I only saw him yell at someone once, and he did it right before I was about to. And I have never raised my voice at a, at a, or sworn at an employee of mine, anyone that worked for me. I've used a lot of profanity, but not at them. I'd say this is no GD good. Right. Um, but I never saw Gary go off on someone. But but the one time he did, it was right before I was going to do it anyway. Right. It was, it was a, um, and I'm not going to name the person, but it was a matter of gross, gross uh, negligence of of duty. And um, but he's brilliant. Like like the detail of being a commissioner. I think a lot of commissioners would be like, okay, the pension plan. Uh, Bill Daly, you worry about the pension plan. But if you ask Gary about the pension plan, he knows every detail of the pension plan. And you got 600 employees at the NHL. Yeah, it's not like a simple thing. And you got 32 teams. Once Seattle comes in, he remembers everyone's name. He remembers the details of their business. I remember I told him something my first year about uh, well, you never, you never, you, know, you turn toward the boards on a retrieval. So we teach defensemen if you're going back for a loose puck in your end. And there's a four checker on your ass. Turn toward the boards. You would never want to turn towards the open ice because the guy can poke check the puck away from you. Going turn toward the boards. That way, if you lose it, it ends up in the corner. Yeah. And I remember four years later, I was watching a game with Gary, and the defenseman turned into the middle and lost the puck, and he goes, "Ah, you got to turn toward the boards there." And I'm like, <laughs> "How do they remember that? That was four years ago." Right. So he astonishes you with his recall, with his personal skills. He treated my family like his family. Uh, he invited us all up to go skiing at his place in Vermont every year. Like, he he was a great boss, but it was like getting an MBA. He was so smart and prepared so well. Like we went into the meetings, we had everything buttoned down. Yeah. What video we were going to show, what rules we were going to talk about, we would rehearse them, and those meetings went off like. And I remember after my first meeting, I prepared like he told me to, and he said, "That's how you run a meeting." Yeah, those GM meetings are. I mean, those those are like clockwork. And I, I like it was funny to read how it was just the wild west before Gary was there. Yeah, it was crazy. I mean, <laughs> uh, Bill Wirtz, the late great Bill Wirtz, and and I didn't get along with Mr. Wirtz particularly well, but. He would interrupt Gary constantly. He would interrupt other owners. It was crazy. There was no decorum. There was no manners. It was it was the Wild West. It was crazy. And then we had owners going to prison. <laughs> uh, we, we had teams moving and threatening to move and no stability at all. And I remember Gary saying to me, we can't fix this till we have two things, till we have a, a, a labor solution that works, that yeah. shares some of the risk, and we have stability of our franchises, which we won't have until we get the TV contract we need. So we did the Fox deal, and people make fun of the glowing puck and everything, but that was a critical stage for the NHL to yeah. get that big national television contract. And then, uh, you know, he's, he just, he's done a marvelous job, and he's a great guy. Like, uh, I still call him for advice. I still trust him completely. Um, he, he's a wonderful man. We we're so lucky to hire him. Yeah. Um, okay, I, so if we're if I'm highlighting moments, you know, in this book that it just seemed like you know, paths could have gone either way. I, the one to me that was most profound was was um, after Brendan dies, and you have a family meeting, and I, like I don't know how I would handle any of this. I've got three kids, and and I don't know, and you know, you go to an Irish pub, and you're like, we can go, you know, we can go two ways with this, and. The fact that we're still talking about Brendan Burke as much as we are is clear you made the right choice. Can you 
put us in that moment and that decision? Yeah, I, I was not worried about my kids. I have fantastic kids. I, I really do. I'm so fortunate. Um, but uh, you worry as a family. So I had um, a cousin that passed away unexpectedly when I was a kid, and I don't think his dad ever recovered from it. Yeah, yeah. And I saw how it, the strain it put on their family. And they're a marvelous family, talented family. And, and their kids have been widely successful, but I don't think my uncle ever recovered from it. Mm. And I vowed right then and there that that wasn't going to be our household. So I took them out for lunch. And the, the reason we went to an Irish pub is I couldn't find anything that was open uh, at that time. But we went into the restaurant side of an Irish pub and I said, look, we have two choices as a family. There's only two ways this goes. So either we march ahead or we sit by the side of the road and hang our heads and, and mope. And I said, we are, we are marching ahead as a family. There's no option here for you. Yeah. The Burke family is going to march ahead. We're going to make sure we remember Brendan. We're going to turn his passing into a positive for a lot of people. But we are marching ahead. And they all agreed. Molly, Katie, Patrick all said, yep, we got it, Dad. They've been great. Yeah. What are you proudest of that legacy? Well, I think they're all the three older kids. So I got two daughters that live here in Toronto who are wonderful. They're 14 and 16, uh, dealing with the pandemic as best they can. They're marvelous kids. But the older kids, the older kids are all fiercely independent. Uh, they make the right moral choices. They uh, they're successful. They're happy. Like to me, the the number one thing, and it's what I told them all: pick a school where you'll be successful. Don't worry about whether it's the best school you get into or not. Pick a school where you'll be successful. That, and then find a job that you love. Like, don't do a job you hate. So I think it was T.S. Eliot wrote that most men lead lives of quiet desperation. And it's true. And you see guys, and they, they hate their job, and they hate their marriage, and they're miserable. I'm like, man, these are choices you made. Like, if you hate your job, why don't you do something else? And so if you pick a field where you're really excited... And, and like I say, my big fear, driving to work in the morning, I remember when I was in Hartford, I would go in at 5.30 in the morning, and I had to drive through two state parks. So I had a short drive to work, like 10 miles. Yeah. But you have to go over the mountain, they call it. And people in Alberta would laugh. It's not a mountain. It's just a big hill. Yeah. But there's two state parks on top of the mountain. And the, the issue would be if you sped through the state parks, there were deer all over the road, and there were wild turkeys all over the road. So I would have to drive cautiously to avoid hitting a turkey or a deer. But otherwise, I would have sped all the way to work. I was so excited to, to get to work. Same thing in Calgary. I had a nice short drive to work, but I'd have to slow down because I'd be like, you're going too fast. <laughs> it's going to be there. Your office will be there when you get there. Slow down. So to me, um, they've all picked jobs that they enjoy. Um, and I told them, if it ever gets to the point where you don't enjoy it, then do something else. Like You, you can't be happy in your life. Work is so big a part of your life, eight hours, 10 hours a day. It's so big a chunk of your life that you can't be in a job you don't like. Yeah. All right. Let's, I, I want to conclude on two topics. One, you, you were pretty, uh, I would say, transparent in media battles you had through the years. Um, by name, I was, I was nervous reading the media sections. You never know if your, your name's going to pop up in these things. Um, was did, any thoughts on you know battles in Vancouver and Toronto and how that played out? With those well, guys? I think so. The quote that's attributed to me a lot is that I referred to the media as scumbags and maggots, or maggots and scumbags. Yeah, yeah. And even that, if you go back and read that whole quote, what I said was the vast majority of the media are honest, hardworking people who try to get it right, and they're important to us. Like, the media are important to the business. Yeah. Guys like you are important to the NHL. But I said there's a handful of scumbags and maggots who screw it up for the rest of the people. So it's actually praising the media, yeah. pointing out there's a handful of bad people. And that's how I still feel. And I, I did name people by name, and I'm not embarrassed about it. I'm not worried about it. Yeah. I'll let, I'm going to let people read the book and say that. We'll, we'll, I'll, we'll tease that out a little bit. But it's, you know, it's it's... It's interesting. It's palace intrigue from my point of view, but um, the only the only pushback I would give you, Brian, is I, I guess I, I lied. I'm, I'm going to name Steve Simmons here. One of the things I admire about Steve, and I know people don't love him, and I know he's, but like I feel like he always tries to do do what's right, and he doesn't care either what the fire. Yeah, is. I disagree completely. Do I don't you? think he has any moral compass at all. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I. 
I, 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 like, I, I read what he does. And I'm like, holy cow, that took guts to, to, to publish that or to write that. And he clearly doesn't, you know, I think there's something. But you obviously disagree. Yes. <laughs> all right. All right. Um, I'm, all right. I'm going to move on from that. And then, last thing, Brookie, you said, you said, um, reading is a huge thing in your family. Like, TV's off, you guys are reading books. What book has made the biggest impact, and, and what are you reading right now? Uh, I'm reading, I, I don't have it in front of me. I don't have the title. Uh, David McCulloch book, who's a Princeton yeah. historian. It's great. And, and this is about settling the Ohio Valley. I'm just at one chapter into it. It's about the uh, first concerted effort to settle the Ohio River Valley and the importance of building that, the United States moving westward. The Pioneers Review, um, is that it? I'm looking, or hold on. Um, Pioneers, maybe? Yeah, I think it is. Pioneers, yeah, okay. And I've read all of his books. I think he's a brilliant writer and a great historian. Um, And I'm envious. My cousin Rand that works at Princeton knows him and and has offered to introduce me to him, but I've never been down there when he's around. So anyway, that's what I I read a lot of biographies. I read a lot of of history. I was a history major. And I try to read uh, a sports book every fourth or fifth. I usually have two books on the go. I usually have one on my bed and one on my briefcase. Yeah, and so I I read on airplanes. Like I used to work on airplanes. Now uh, I don't fly that much anymore. But I I said that's my time to read. Yeah, and I always keep a piece of paper and a pen beside me on the couch or even in my bed because I'll be reading and I'll think, oh, I haven't talked to Craig Custance in a while. Write down a note, call Craig Custance. Yeah, and in the morning I take that list down and that's my to do list for the day. Uh, pay this bill. Call this guy I haven't seen dig up a scouting report on this guy, just work-related stuff, personal stuff. Um, but and then I try to read a sports book. Every fifth or sixth book, I think you have to keep current. So, you know, I, I read Ron McLean's book. Mm-hmm. Uh, I read uh, I read Wendell Clark's book. I read Doug Gilmore's book. And I, I think you got to stay current with the guys that are in the industry. So I try to read a sports book every fifth or sixth book. Yeah. I'm reading Titan right now, the Rockefeller book by Ron Chernow. It's good. Yeah, I read it. I've, Chernow writes great biographies. Yeah. Dude. I read that book. I read He wrote a Hamilton biography, I think, yeah, that I read. I, I think a George Washington one. He's a great writer. Yeah. Um, how close did you come to taking the Thrasher's job? That would have changed Atlanta. I never got offered the Thrasher's <laughs> job. Like, 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 like I, I, th- I think, I believe, uh, at that time, you know, I really believe they were trying to get a hold of me to talk about the job, but I was never. That's not fair to Donnie Waddell to no, say. No, that's right. I, I that was offered that. And I will tell you, here's a little technical thing that people might like. Yeah. When you go to hire a coach, you don't say, "Do you want to be the coach of this team?" What you say to them is, "If I offer you this job, will you take it?" Mm. Because if you offer it to Joe Smith and he says no. I have to be able to tell Craig Custance that you're the first guy I offer this job. <laughs> that's to. right. Like that's that, right. That's going to be important to that person. Did you offer this job to anyone else? No. And so I don't, I was never, uh, Harvey Schiller was the guy in charge. He never offered me the job. And I think I make that clear in the book. Uh, I think he was trying to get a hold of me to, to talk about the job, but he never offered me the job. I never spoke to him until years later because I had already taken the job in Vancouver back in 98. Yeah. I, I love that part. All right. And that's a bit of urban legend now in Atlanta, by the way. Like there's this, you know, there's a lot of urban legend around you in that job, or there was. Um, all right. I, I will conclude this way. Igor Larionov once wrote a book, and, and you were asking him a lot of details, and Igor, as he does, said, buy the book. That was his answer to you. <laughs> <laughs> true, <laughs> I would suggest true story. Buy the book. This is, it was great. You don't, in some of this, what I loved about it, Brian, is it's still, it's so, it's current, right? You're, you're, there's deals, you know, trade proposals with current players, and like you said, we don't get to see that stuff. And I loved all that. And, it, you know, I nerded out on all of it. So thanks for doing this. Brian, and and good luck on the the book tour. Thanks, Craig. All right, I want to thank Brian Burke for joining the podcast. Again, the the book that he wrote is called Burke's Law, A Life in Hockey with Stephen Brunt. It really is. It's it's a good read. I did, you know, I was, sometimes you prep for a podcast and you you, you read some, some chapters, you skim through it. This thing I sat down and wrote from start to finish. Didn't even get into, I wanted to get into the U.S. hockey 
silver metal run one of my as you know one of my favorite subjects that's there's some good stuff on there and there's like there's so much good stuff in this book and, and it's it's modern it's it's players that you recognize it's backstories uh it's a fun read so i would encourage you definitely to, to pick up a copy of the book before we wrap up uh i'm really excited we're going to bring back a post-draft special edition of the prospect series in the full 60 with Corey Promen and Scott Wheeler. So just be on the lookout to that. Just to make sure you're getting it, make sure you're subscribing to the Full 60 on any podcast, uh, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, that way you will get that in your feed. And also, Scott Burnside and Pierre Lebrun have a new two-man advantage post-draft just ahead of free agency this Thursday at The Athletic. And if you're not subscribing to The Athletic, you can listen to these podcasts ad-free. You can get all of our draft coverage. Corey Promen literally wrote 6,000 stories this week. A lot of people didn't realize that the number count was that high. Don't miss any of them. Go to theathletic.com slash full60, and you can get an all-access subscription for a dollar a month. Wow. Thanks again to Brian Burke for joining the podcast. Thank you for listening, and have a great week.